Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Right? Because those props were fucking ballin'. Yeah, and that touring thing that the thing that they did to absorb uh, Faustus, that trick yeah. that they did. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I know. I know. That production was great. It was so good. Oh, so smart. So good. Such a smart way to solve dragging him into hell. So fucking good. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlin and Aubrey Whitlock. Whitlock, 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 Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet, 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 And this week, we're talking about Christopher Marlowe. Marlowe, Marlowe. It's Dr. Faustus, Faustus, Faustus. Faustus, Faustus, Faustus. That was a weird um, thing that I just did. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Please still love me. It's all good. I, if anything, they'll love you more, right? Um, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Most weeks, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Johnny Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. But sometimes it's not Shakespeare, like this week when it's Marlowe. Uh, but, you know, even when it's not Shakespeare, you will still get all the necessary introductory stuff, which is everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and some of its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else like our super smart and always correct opinions. Yeah. And I mean, what better play to talk about during Halloween week, since we already talked about Macbeth, is the play like about demons and the devil and shit. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Ooh, spooky. spooky, he's going to hell. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm ready now. All right, it's um rhetorical device of the week time. So because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. Y'all. Uh, for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize the patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Um, and uh, Marlowe does it, too. Probably not as well as Shakespeare, but he does it. Uh, so. I think Marlowe does it maybe even better. Does he? Sometimes yeah. he may. I mean, he was definitely better at that verse stuff. At that yeah. blank verse, like he originated yeah. that shit. He's the OG of the blank verse. That's real. So his his right. I got no problems with his rhetoric. I'm just talking yeah. about my butt. So uh, draw a card, chrysanthemum. Okay, and make it a for? good one. I'm trying. We're getting down to the dregs, man. I'm gonna have to start pulling from like Silva Rhetorica at some point after this. Okay, here we go. Stop. I want that red one. <gasps> I think I think you're gonna like this one. Fucking better. I, I'm scared now. A syndeton. A syndeton. A syndeton is a dinosaur that eats conjunctions. Yes. A syndeton. Uh, a s y n d e t o n. A syndeton is. It's a um, dinosaur that eats conjunctions. Yes, I love it. it. Is, it's a form of omission. 
it's missing conjunctions between clauses, often resulting in a hurried rhythm or forceful effect. Asyndeton is a dinosaur that eats conjunctions. Polysyndeton is a dinosaur that poops conjunctions. Yep, that's the mnemonic that, was it Merlin? I think it was Merlin came up with. Or somebody uh, came up with. I, th- I think it was handed down from... Maybe it predates Merlin. It's yeah, just she loves yeah, dinosaurs I... so much. I'm just yeah. willing to attribute anything dino-related to our girl I want to say that I got it from Charlene. But don't quote me on that. Because I don't know that that's true. But you're right. It's kind of a common mnemonic yeah. uh, amongst us word nerds in the program. Um, so the example of Asyndeton is, apropos, uh, is from Macbeth. It's Banquo. When he says, thou hast it now, King Cawdor gloms all, as the weird women promised. So instead of saying king and Cawdor and gloms, he's he's dropping those conjunctions. Cool. They ain't got no function because they ain't no conjunctions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's nice. a syndeton for you. Um, fun little fun little omission tactic there. Great. Ta-da! Oh. And we don't. And we don't. I'm not doing the dings. Yeah, because we don't. Because it's do that time to re-meet the contemporary, even though we've already dun, met dun, him. Dun, so. dun, dun, dun. Christopher Marlowe, this is a very abridged review <laughs> of your life. All right, Christopher Marlowe. He's called Kit by his friends. He was born in 1564, which is the same year as Shakespeare. He died in 1593 when he was only 29 years old. He was totally a spy. He was Toads stabbed in the eye. He had good hair, and he wrote in a pair, sometimes with Shakespeare and Thomas Nash. Yep. We're going for the ride. Yep. Some of the highlights of his career are uh, Tamburlaine the Great and uh, the Jew of Malta. You might have heard our mm-hmm. Jew of Malta 101 episode. Um, and also he collaborated on the Henry VI series with our boy Billy Shakes. And of course, Dr. Faustus, probably, I, I would argue, the most famous in his canon of work certainly now yeah, i mean i think now. then tamberlane was the runaway sure. hit but yeah, yeah, faustus yeah. is the one that gets taught yeah it's the one people remember now so i mean i just taught it so yeah christopher marlowe that was some of your life <laughs> we have re-met the contemporary yay good job um if you'd like a more in-depth biography of good old Christopher Marlowe, you should go back to our Jew of Malta episode and get the the whole Marlowe lecture that I gave to my students or actually yep. didn't give to my students, but had intended to give to my students. Yeah. So. Also, I mean, Marlowe had like the best hair. I think we decided that too. Such he, good hair. He had luscious, luscious locks. Yeah. You can roll deep back into our Instagram to find pictures of Chris Marlowe and his beautiful hair. Yeah. The yeah. shampoo commercial. Yep. He's just a Pantene guy all over. Yeah. So, all right. All right. Uh, <laughs> so before we start any kind of a summary for any play in our 101 episodes, we start with a five-word unhelpful title. Mine is not so much unhelpful as it is just five words long, and that is, he still could have repented. Nice. You big dumb dummy, Faustus. Um, so I'm going to give you my five word title, which is also coincidentally is how I opened my class on Dr. Faustus. Nice. And that is John Faustus is an idiot. Agreed. He's a big old dumb dumb. Yeah. My students thought so as well. Yeah. He's a dummy. He's super dumb for being really educated. He's real dumb. 
real dumb. Yeah. So let's talk Dramatis Personae before we jump into the plot of Justice. But only the really important ones. So first off, of course, is that that dummy, John Faustus, the scholar who wants it all. Yep. Uh, he's got a couple friends who are also scholars. Their names are Valdez, or maybe Valdez, and Cornelius. And mm-hmm. I always want to say Voltamond and Cornelius. <laughs> That's <laughs> a different play. play. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, I see, yes, I see the inclination. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, we have John Faustus's true BFF and crush, Mephistopheles, the right hand of Satan. He's a big old demon. Yeah. He, yeah. she, I'm just kind of genderless. Yeah. Big old demon. Yeah. We also have a Wagner, who is Faustus's servant slash scholarly companion slash assistant slash narrator guy. Yeah. He's around. He does some shit. Uh, then we have um, Lucifer. Duh. Wait. That's all I have to say about that. Lucifer? Like Lucifer. He's like right. the devil. Oh, weird. Um, so we also have two angels in this play. We have the good angel and the evil angel, but you can't figure out what they do. Yeah, no, that's really obscure. Um, Super opaque. We also have Beelzebub. And lest you think that Lucifer and Beelzebub are the same, think again, they are not. Not in this play. Not Not in this play. And actually, Uh, I don't think in the Bible either. I don't think they're the same. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a scholar, Um, though. Yeah, me either. I mean, wait, I am a scholar, but I'm not a scholar. Of the Bible. <laughs> right, I'm not a biblical scholar. Yeah, I, I don't know jack about the Bible. We have a pope, referred to in this play as the pope, but which pope? Who can say? He's a pope. No, nobody knows. Nobody Just knows. The pope. Yeah. We also have the German emperor, which I'm pretty sure is not the same German emperor as, you know, the one in like World War One or some shit. Um, no, so again, <laughs> so definitely again, not. <laughs> so again, uh, which German emperor? Marlow. It's a a German emperor. We also have the Duke and Duchess of Van Holt. They're German. This whole play takes place in Germany, FYI. Yeah. If that has not come clear already. Yeah. They're German. They're all German. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, they're not kind of really characters, but they do appear and as apparitions, and they are kind of important. So we'll name them. Uh, Helen of Troy. And Alexander the Great. And if you don't know who they are, you're more fucked than I can say, friend. Like, I mean, I, I can't help you. There's only so far we can go in this podcast. I'm <laughs> not sure that that I I I mean, you're maybe it's fine if you don't know who they Your are. Your life is but over also, if you don't know who they are. Maybe Google, because <laughs> uh, they're interesting people. So yeah. you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's all I got. All right. Well, yeah. hey, why is this play so goddamn popular? Um, because it's about a guy. It, it is. This is a popular play. It is very popular. It's about a guy who sells his soul to the devil. And yeah, that is sort of a timeless um, yeah, theme idea. Yeah, and the idea situation. of redemption, like it's the ultimate play about redemption in a mm-hmm. weird way. Even though mm-hmm. Faustus doesn't get it ultimately. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. <laughs> Again, <laughs> if you don't know already, like I can't help you. <laughs> that is outside I mean, the scope of this podcast. I yeah, this play you. is four hundred and some years old. So yeah, there's like there's operas that. and shit written about this. So like, yeah. I can't. I cannot. There's only so much I can do. Yeah. People. Um. 
yeah, no, it's really fucking popular. Um, it just is. And I think, yeah, just because it's one of those like enduring, uh, it, it's an enduring conundrum that people face mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle between good and evil. Yeah. Yep. Knowledge and power. Yep. It's pretty fundamental. Yeah. So. yeah. It's a good play. Mm-hmm. It's a really good play, you guys. And a really interesting play, as we will show in both the summary and the things that we say about the play afterwards. Word. Summary time. Cool. So we are now going to summarize the play for you in a segment that this week we are calling The Seven Deadly Summaries. Love it. But it's only one summary. That's a little misleading title. There's not seven summaries. No. No. All righty. You, right. uh, you ready for this shit? I'm so ready. Take it away. All right, here we go. Act one. Faustus is bored with his studies because he thinks he's mastered everything. And so he turns to the study of magic, the only subject he hasn't mastered yet. A good angel and an evil angel attempt to persuade him to their side to either leave it alone and return to Christ-like studies or to delve in and uncover the mysteries of the universe. He tells his comrades Valdez and Cornelius that their words have convinced him to follow the magical arts. They agree to start teaching him a little bit after dinner. I mean, clearly you need to do this on a full stomach. Uh, Faustus begins conjuring and he summons a devil who he commands immediately to change its shape into something more pleasing. So Mephistopheles, being the cheeky little bitch that he is, enters in human form dressed as a friar, because that's appropriate. Uh, Faustus commands Mephistopheles to to wait on him and serve him while he lives and good old Mephi explains that he can't do that without Lucifer's permission uh, nor that Faustus's conjuring was the sole reason that Mephistopheles appeared and then Faustus sends Mephi back to Lucifer to bargain for service promising his soul in return for 24 years of power and command of Mephistopheles why the year 24? I don't know he's such an idiot idiot. big Uh, mistake, first mistake Faustus dithers about whether or not he's making the right choice, uh, and the good and evil angels come back again to appeal to him. He follows the evil angel's suggestion to think on wealth. Faustus signs a contract in his own blood uh, that Lucifer can have his soul in exchange for 24 years of service from Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles immediately starts showing Faustus's power, conjuring devils to dance and serve him, answering Faustus's questions about hell, summoning a devil to serve as Faustus's wife, which he is not into, um, answering, sorry, uh, and giving him books with all of the secrets of all of worldly knowledge inside of them. Um, Faustus, after this, has some reservations about being deprived of the pleasures of heaven, so the good, and angel, the good and evil angel come back and try to sway him. Faustus is unable to repent. He follows the evil angel's path again. He and Mephistopheles argue over astrology. Faustus gets mad and banishes him. The good and evil angels visit again. Mephistopheles re- returns with Lucifer and Beelzebub in tow, and the devils convince Faustus to give up any thought of heaven and salvation, and Lucifer con- conjures a parade of the seven deadly sins to convince Faustus of the pleasures of hell. Hmm, cute. In Act 3, Faustus and Mephistopheles tour Europe like college students. They land in Rome and then beat and alternately tease the Pope uh, while invisible, which leads to a very humorous scene in which a bunch of prayers are being said over the Pope's holy table and the food on his table. And that is literally all that happens in Act 3. Moving on. That's it. 
Um, Faustus and Mephistopheles visit the German emperor. Faustus uses Mephistopheles to conjure up Alexander the Great and his paramour. A skeptical knight is given cuckold's horns as punishment for not believing in Faustus's power. Um, while preparing to return to Wittenberg, Faustus sells his horse to a horse courser, and then the horse turns into a bundle of hay when ridden through a pond. When the horse courser tries to drag Faustus off for retribution, Faustus detaches his leg and Faustus laughs at his hilarious joke. Then Faustus and Mephistopheles go visit the Duke and Duchess of Van Holt, and the pregnant Duchess wants grapes, and Faustus sends Mephistopheles to fetch them for her. It's a super dramatic scene. <laughs> like, dumb. Okay, act five. Wagner thinks that Faustus is putting his affairs in order for the end of his life. He's got, like, suspicions. Uh, Faustus visits with some scholars who want proof that Helen of Troy really was the fairest woman to ever live. And Faustus has Mephistopheles lead her in. An old man enters, warning Faustus to return to Christ. And Faustus wavers in his resolve, but then recommits his soul to Lucifer. Faustus asks Mephistopheles to torment that old man, but Mephistopheles cannot reach his pure soul and therefore cannot torture him. Faustus asks to see Helen and Mephistopheles brings her in. They kiss. Faustus regrets his choice and warns his fellow scholars against following his path. He reveals that he made a deal with the devil for his knowledge. And then Faustus spends an, his last hour in torment and then the devil drags him down to hell. The end. Ta-da. That's 443. it. 4.43. Ain't that bad. Still under yeah. five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a super short play. It is. It's tight. Yes. Like like yeah. many of Marlowe's works. It's just concise. It's tight. It does what it needs to do. 1,400 lines. Yeah. Well done, buddy. Well done. Yeah. It's real good. Good stuff. Okay. So uh, let, me, let me talk a little bit more about those Please 1,400 do. lines. So. Dr. Faustus uh, has two pretty different versions of the text. They are called the A text and the B text. This is the only play from the early modern period that I know of that has that particular designation for textual variants. I mean, for all of Shakespeare's plays, right, when we've got the weird quarters, we talk about Q1. You know, it's not A text of Hamlet and B text of Hamlet. It's Q1 Hamlet and Q2 Hamlet and Folio Hamlet. Um, So that's a weird thing. I don't know why that is the way that that is. I should have asked some questions, but I didn't. So, okay. Um, So Faustus, Dr. Faustus, has 10 early modern print editions between 1604 and 1663. Three of those are the A text, which is uh, that covers the summary that you just heard. Um, And seven are the B text. The B text adds 676 lines that are not in the A text. um, And it also omits 36 lines that are in the A text. I don't know which 36 lines. And even when lines are, you know, the same, there are lots of textual variants within. There's a really great edition of the play, which is edited by uh, Eric Rasmussen and I think it's David Bevington. So they edit a really, really cool collection that prints the two texts side by side. And this is a little hard to explain when, when the words vary, like when they're additions, they're like gaps in sentences where, where they're missing words or added words or changed words. It's all, it's really cool. It's a really, really cool addition. Anyway. Okay. So they're, they're with 676 extra lines. They're pretty striking differences. Um, in the B text, uh, Faustus comes in writing on a dragon in the scene before he messes with the Pope. 
Um, he also gains more political and worldly power in the B text. In the A text, he he plays a lot more pranks. This is a, a really pranky text. In the B text, he makes friends with kings and dukes who promise him more power. A B text also has a scene with Lucifer at the end, uh, and they talk about Faustus not just being dragged to hell by the devils, but torn apart limb from limb by the devils. Um, the B text is a power struggle between popes. There's also a lot more clowning in the B text. Um, we left all of the clowns out of this summary because they're barely in the A text and they're not super interesting or funny, um, but there's a lot more of them in the B text. Also in the B text, so the, the guy who Faustus gives the cuckold's horns to um, has a name. His name is Benvolio. And Faustus also conjures devils to chase Benvolio, who then gets mad and tries to kill Faustus. So Benvolio chops off Faustus's head and Faustus picks up the head and then permanently put, puts horns on Benvolio's head. Um, in the Atex, he takes the horns off and there's none of this murderiness or head chopping offness. So where do the additions come from is a, a question. Henslow's diary, Philip Henslow, who is a important guy. <sighs> Have we talked about Henslow? Did I do a Burbage break on his diary already? I, I feel like we did. He was like a, not an actor manager per se. He was like. He was just like, like a manager a manager. He was like a company manager yeah. kind of and a house yeah. manager. Yeah. Because he handled the house and the properties mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. costumes and, and actors and playwrights fees. Yeah. He's sort of the OG right? company manager. I think that's a, yeah. a good. Um, so he he left a diary with a whole just like treasure trove of information about props and costumes and sets and all kinds of things sorry and when you say diary we mean it more like the way british people use it like a calendar not like dear diary today i blah 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 yeah it's, it's more like yeah. daily yeah. things right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. uh it's an, an account book essentially so he, the diary lists payments uh for additions to dr faustus um to william bird and william rowley so there's that that's a that's a thing that we know um, also, the original text, in air quotes, uh, the A text probably also had a collaborator uh, with Marlowe, so it's it's not entirely Marlovian. The the more comic scenes in the A text may possibly have been written by Henry Porter, who I've never heard of, or maybe Thomas Nash, who I have heard of. Also important to know that the A text. Uh, gets printed in 1604 that's the first the first uh time that it makes it into print the play was written in about uh 1592 1592 so that's a a gap of what 12 years so that's that's just important to know you know we don't know like i was saying to my students last week uh we don't know what may have happened to the text in the the 12 year interim between performance first performance and uh print so there's that. Um, and then I just want to super shout out to my colleague and friend, Charlie Bell, for helping me out with uh, the, the textual differences of this play. He is uh, in my program. He's a second year MA student, and he is writing a thesis on textual variants in Dr. Faustus. He's awesome. Keep an eye out for him. He's going places, y'all. Thanks, Charlie. You're the bomb. So from a production perspective, this play is so much fun. 
so much fun to produce. You get to do blood effects uh, because Faustus has to write in his own blood. You get to do all kinds of weird demon shit. Like mm-hmm. you get Mephistopheles, you get Lucifer, you get Beelzebub, you get the seven deadly sins. You get a good angel and an evil angel. You get to have fake beheadings or fake uh, de-leggings. You've got to have horns, magic horns. And, and horns. And, and a uh, dragon. And a fucking dragon. And invisibility, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. fucking around with the Pope as as an invisible being, invisible, not invisible. I don't know. Um, there's it, This play calls for so many different kinds of of special effects you your main fucking character gets dragged down to hell like what does hell look like how are you gonna do that a bunch of demons pull him into it like it's fucking nuts you have the opportunity to just go crazy uh with sound effects and special effects and oh my god so there's that um which i think you know we asked why is this play so popular? Maybe it's just because like technicians and designers and directors just love it and want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> because God knows I would. Um, Hell yeah. It's so fun. It's so Hell. fun to do. Like, let your imagination work, you know? Yeah. Also, you get one of the best characters in the early modern canon, and that's Mephistopheles. He, she is one of the best characters ever. Fight me on it. I stand by it. Um, what makes Mephi one of the best characters ever? Mephistopheles is. I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to fight you on it. I just want you to show your work. <laughs> is is tortured, right? Meph- Mephistopheles is on the prowl for a soul. You already know that that they are looking for uh, a soul in peril. That's why they're attracted to Faustus to begin with. And then uh, the the answer that Mephistopheles gives about this world being hell because they have, and I'm using gender neutral pronouns on purpose, because they have looked upon the face of God and known God and known heaven and everywhere else that is not that place is hell and how tortured they are um, is one of the most. And you know what? Shout out to Skylar Gardner, who is one of our camper graduates from this past summer. She played Mephistopheles in our camp production and she delivered that line with such clarity and intensity that I really heard it. And I was like, oh, shit, Mephistopheles, like, holy shit, this character, like there's 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 so much going on there. Um, So well done, you, Skylar, first of all. But but then, you know, and Mephistopheles is just they're just there waiting. They just wait and wait and wait and do whatever degrading thing Faustus wants. They don't care. And then, you know, and then it's time to reel in, reel in the money. I, I just find that character who, who is continuously tortured. I, I find that to be a, a really awesome puzzle for an actor. Like, how do you play that? And I, I just think that they're a great character. And they're real cheeky. They're just like <laughs> really fucking cheeky. I love it. Because um, Mephistopheles shows up in their like crazy scary demon form and faust just goes no 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 come back as something else come back as a friar and mephistopheles does it and there's a friar the whole time it's great um it's fucking great so you've got that uh let your actors grapple over who gets to play mephistopheles um because faustus is nowhere near the most interesting character i i like clowns as you may or may not know 
I think the clowns can be funny in this play. Although sometimes, I, I don't know, it's hard. It's hard to do. Also, there's this question of like, do the clowns actually do the lines as performed? Uh, there was an argument made, I think, Jess, our first year in the program is when the rogues were doing their Faustus. And somebody was writing a thesis on whether or not actually some of the, there's like, um, et cetera, the, or like little ampersand C, you know, uh, symbols for whatever, which may or may not be a signal to actually improvise uh, or, or like throw in some Lotzi. And so that company, that MFA company played with, you know, what if our clowns in these clowning interludes in this play are essentially unscripted and it's improvised? I'm not sure it was particularly successful for them in that production. Uh, it was a thing to try. It was a choice that they made. It was a big choice and it was a, um, an interesting choice. So, but I mean, I think that's, um, that wasn't just something that they pulled out of nowhere. That was F based on like research, which I think actually we talked about something like that in our Blackfriars episode. There was some, somebody who talked about that. Not, I don't think with Faustus, but were they, you know, so do your clowns improvise? Um, I would suggest yeah, I think it don't. may have been Faustus. Maybe it was. I don't, I don't, but I remember that. But yeah, yeah it's I know somebody's, somebody's research like bore that idea up um, and, and reinforced that idea. So you have that to think about if you choose the text that has more of the Robin clowns. I do find the clowns funny. I would say stick to what Marlowe gave you, though, um, if you're not sure or if you don't have really strong improvisers, because that's a whole different field of training that you would need. And then I just I, I just have a, a question that. I always ruminate over every time I see Faustus, which is like, how are we supposed to feel about Faustus at the end? And maybe, you know, supposed to, that's a loaded thing already. That's a bad way to ask the question. I just couldn't figure out a better way to do it. But like, sometimes I've seen this production and felt really like genuinely bad for Faustus. Maybe it was only like one time. I don't know why it was a something they did was more effective than other times I guess that I've seen it but like felt genuinely sorry that Faustus kind of got himself into this and I was sad that that you know at the tragedy of his being pulled into hell most of the time though I'm like one you were an arrogant fuck to begin with Faustus two this is the classic like genie in a bottle comes out and gives you three wishes and you don't immediately wish for infinite wishes. The fuck is wrong with you? 24 years? Why 24? I'm, st I'm very stuck on that. Um, so then when his arbitrary time limit is up and the angels show up for the very last time, they do show up and they're like, you can still repent, Faustus, you can still do it. And he doesn't and he thinks he can't. And knowing what I know about Marlowe being an atheist and wondering how that weighs on on this issue of like are humans redeemable is there such a thing you know can you be forgiven by God and uh, even at the very last minute even after all of these ridiculous terrible sins Faustus you know the idea that uh, of that everlasting forgiveness and the everlasting suffering and and Faustus essentially chooses hell I don't know. I, I'm kind of rambling, but that's the thing that I that I always think about at the end. And most of the time I'm like, well, you did this to yourself, you dumb shit. That's usually where I end up. And I, and I wonder if there's any kind of way to stage it in which you really genuinely sorrow for Faustus. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> Staging problems, not solutions, I suppose. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I don't know. It's just because I love forgiveness plots. I really do. They move the hell out of me. Like Winter's Tale at the end and the redemption mm, and like sure. those really, as I get older, tug at my heartstrings. So I don't know. And again, like, where does the where does the playwright come into that debate, if at all? How does Marlowe, the atheist, the atheist spy, want us to feel about this? Which, of course, we can never know. But it's what I think about. Because I like to think about things I can't know the answer to. And then drive myself crazy. That's real. I'm here for you. Let's play a game, though. Yeah. This is my favorite new game. <laughs> All right. So this is Jess's students say smart things round two. Awesome. Um, so we did this last week and we're doing this this week. Uh, mostly because these are the two plays that I have taught in my Britlet class this semester. So my students are saying smart things about them. So this week for Faustus, I want to share a student response. Uh, and the first the first half of this is pretty, you know, like it's not a hot take. It's, it's kind of a consensus take. But then the student throws in a little something that I had never considered with this play. So hmm. there we go. Do okay. Tell. So this this discussion board post is titled Faustus does absolutely nothing. Exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. So here we go. Is it just me or does Faustus not really do anything with his power? Uh, from what all I can tell, all he really does is prove to other people that he has unlimited power. He also uses it to lust after Helen, but not actually do anything with her. He brings a duke grapes in winter, brings an emperor's ancestors back to life for a little bit and gives a horse guy his horse. I know he gets those books of infinite knowledge, which was the whole point, but he really just uses it to gloat. This kind of just solidifies that he is a pompous a-hole, but it's also a bit of a letdown. I was really hoping that he would do something badass like take over the world, but gloating is cool, I guess. <laughs> also, in class, this is me talking now. I was like, if you want someone to take over the world, you gotta read Tamberlane. That's your play. Uh, moving on to the second part of this post. It's also funny to me that even in the end, he refuses to repent. I'm pretty sure that the old man that appears is supposed to be God, but even that is not enough to, to convince him to ask forgiveness. Here's Faustus forgive, uh, fearing everything that is to come, but he won't take the scholars or the old man's advice. In the end, I guess he gets what he deserves and he does indeed regret it. Hashtag totally called it. So the old man's supposed to be God? Huh. Right? Like, I never considered that. And I'm sure that someone else somewhere before my student has, but, like, the, huh. he blew my mind hole. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, I mean, that does explain why Mephistopheles can't lay a hand on him. Yeah. Because he's God. I'm really interested in that That's... take. Like, 1010 hmm. would watch that version. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Nice little plot theory. It's a little fan I theory. Know, I love it. Right? It's a headcanon and I'm here for it. Yeah. Ooh. I yeah, mm -hmm. I'm loving that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's yeah. like some weird Deus Ex Machina shit too. Like yeah. unsuccessful, which is interesting. Yeah. Which of course of course Marlo would okay. Sorry. Of course Marlo the atheist spy would have like an unsuccessful deus ex machina. I'm digging this theory. I'm like leaning into it. Okay. 
Yeah. I, I love it. That's brilliant. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So I, we, I tried to get him to put some pressure on that in class and he was just kind of like, I mean, it's supposed to be God. And nobody else was like super mind blown. I was like, but you guys, I've been an early modernist for so long now. And like, no one's ever said that to me. And my mind is blown. And like, I need you to understand how smart this guy is being right now. (laughs) I like how he seems to brush it off too, though. He's like, but it's God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like everyone's already supposed to know that. That's funny though. No, my students are brilliant. Mostly. Amazing. So. Even accidentally so. I love it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to some Shakes Bubble gossip. Yeah, let's um, fucking do it. Yeah. So first on the gossip list is really just a shout out to the Bards Ablaze Theater Collective, the MFA, the current MFA company in the Shakespeare and Performance Program. They just premiered their one hour educational touring production of Romeo and Juliet. And I have just one word for you all. Circus. It was... Oh, really? Yes. A circus take on Romeo and Juliet. And awesome. I did ask I did ask questions about this uh, of some of their company members. It's, it's a circus troupe putting on Romeo and Juliet. Oh, cool. Because at first I was confused. I was like, wait, is it like factions within the circus family, like fighting each other? <laughs> no, that's not it. It was, it's a, it, so it's a little meta theatrical in this conceit fantastic costumes they pull from a bunch of different circus tropes of like turn of the turn of the 20th century circus tropes the you know the hermaphrodite the bearded lady the uh the you know trapeze artist the clown um some some of the really big interesting choices uh the nurse is a bearded lady played by a dude mm. interesting also paris is a mime which was mm. super interesting and i had so many questions later um so it is a it is a compelling uh one hour cut of romeo and juliet i you know watching it didn't feel like i missed anything huge and vital even though it was only a one hour cut you know they still really they just streamlined the story really well it's meant to tour to schools uh and it is certainly eye-catching and i think it'll be really successful and if you would like to book them check them out on their facebook page at bards ablaze theater collective or you could probably just Google that name and find their website because I think they have one of those too. So congrats, guys. It was a good show. It's And I think it's going to make you some money. So that's good. Yay. Also, sort of apropos to last week, they are now moving into their small-scale touring shows of Measure for Measure and Twelfth Night. Oh. So, yeah. So they're doing right. Measure. Can't wait to see what they do with that one, given our Measure for Measure episode last week. Because, of course, they listen to it and will take in everything that we've said. <laughs> to their... <laughs> I mean, at least one of them will. We know we got one listener. Right. Shout out to Linnea. What up, yeah, bro? Linnea. Because, you know, all the smart people listen to what we say and then immediately yes. implement our words. Um, Linnea um, is very smart because she, she is, is friends with both of us. So clearly she's making good choices with her life. Moving on. Um, other, you know, shakeups in the hierarchy of some big regional theater companies uh oregon shakespeare festival's executive director cynthia Ryder is leaving the company effective at the end of their current artistic year this year so uh, like now basically yeah i think by yeah. come december she's she's out yeah. um until that you know they are going to bring in an interim person and hire a new person she's been in that position since 2013 
so it's been a longish tenure for her. The reasons she cited were kids her kids are off in college and it sounded like a retirement notice i found mm, out about this because mm-hmm. i'm a member <laughs> i'm a contributing right. member of uh osf and so there was like a membership blast email blast that went cool. out to everybody to tell everybody about it and that was kind of what she what she cited so i don't think it was anything like terrible either that or it's cloaked in very diplomatic like really subtly diplomatic language but that's a shake-up so if you're an executive director type which i think is their terminology for like money manager like managing director yeah that's i think probably, that's kind of what this yeah. position is so yet another big wig position opening mm-hmm. up at the country's largest regional uh shakespeare theater so if you're interested check that out um that's just a little bit of goss um you got anything jess so thing the first the oxford handbook of shakespearean comedy which is edited by heather hirschfield Hirschfeld, sorry, uh, is published. It's out. It's it's around. Uh, you can you can check it out. Um, those Oxford handbooks of early modern stuff are great. Yep. Um, they're super super useful. They're expensive, so go to your regular, not regular, local library and have them find it for you. But it's out. The director of my program and the chair of my dissertation committee, Michelle Dowd, has a chapter in it on gender and genre, colon Shakespeare's comic women, which I have not read yet, but um, expect brilliance because she's a brilliant person. Um, Thing number two is also a book that is early black Oh, diaspora studies. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah. It's not diaspora. It's diaspora. Yep. So early black diaspora studies, a critical anthology, which is out from Palgrave Macmillan now. And it, it brings together uh, early modern studies and black studies, which are two fields that have, perhaps have not had a whole lot to say to each other, which is exciting that they're now coming together. That is edited by Cassie Smith, who is also one of my faculty, um, and she is sitting on my dissertation committee as well. And again, haven't read it yet, but I expect it to be brilliant. Sounds and, fascinating. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure it will show up in my uh, dissertation. So that's thing number two. And then thing number three is the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women has a blog, and they are seeking contributors for blog posts on this year's theme, which is power, authority, and women's voices in early modern texts, criticism, and the academy today. Ooh, is that a challenge? I want to submit. Yeah, so uh, I'll maybe, we'll put it it in the show notes so you can go to our website and find out the information. But also, so in the era of hashtag me too, these blog posts will seek to investigate such questions as, number one, How did early modern women resist cultural, institutional, and legal efforts to silent or distort their voices? How did the voices of early modern women work to disrupt established legal and cultural narratives? Number two, how have various critical traditions engaged with or ignored uh, questions surrounding women, power, and authority in the early modern period? Number three, how are critical approaches and traditions inflected by contemporary debates around women and questions of power, authority, and testimony? Number four, how do issues of gender, power, and authority impact our teaching of early modern topics, which I am super interested in? And number five, how are such questions affecting the broader world of the academy itself today? 
So Meredith Ray and Anna Wainwright, who are the blog coordinators for the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women, um, are looking for proposals on any of these topics. There's some emails to submit, uh, and we will we'll put all of this information up on our website, so you can go to hurleybillyshakespeareshow.com, click on the show notes for this episode, and it will give you everything that you need to know to get in touch with them and pitch a pitch a blog post that's really cool yeah so those are that's my gossip those are the gossipy things that i've got awesome woohoo all right yeah all right it is dick bracket time uh so last week we asked you to vote on piero from antonio's revenge and antonio and melita versus the cardinal from the cardinal and also richard the third versus tamara so in Piero versus the Cardinal, who came out on top? Uh, that would be the Cardinal. Mm-hmm. Correct. It, I mean, Pierre's a dick and he does some shitty shit. But like, yeah, it seems to be that in in the dick bracket, if if there's even the hint of rape around you, you're the bigger dick. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Which uh, pans out in our next pairing, too. This mm-hmm, was like, mm-hmm, this was mm-hmm. a pretty major pairing. People have, people have big feelings. Yeah. I think I think some people, to be fair, got confused about like whether being a dick was a good thing. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people voted just because they like Richard. Mm-hmm. And this is not the point. Richard's a dick. Mm-hmm. But Tamara's a bigger dick. She yep. squeaked by narrowly with more votes. Tamara for sure is a bigger dick because yeah. she facilitates rape and also murders. Yeah. Um, our, our good friend, uh, Mia Gosling from good tickle brain hopped into the mentions and was like, okay. Yeah. Tamara's a dick and Richard's a dick, but like Tamara's dickishness comes out of revenge and uh, Richard's dickishness is just sort of, inherent so like that makes him worse and i was like i love you but you're wrong (laughs) yeah i don't know i don't i don't know i mean because like i see i see her point i see what she's getting at and i see where she's coming from but like nah revenge-based dickishness i think is way more bad worse because like you've got a choice and you're choosing yeah but maybe inborn dickishness you don't have a choice and so maybe that's worse i don't know now I'm just I'm talking myself in circles. I don't know when uh, when you don't have a choice, it, it it makes you more of a victim of your circumstances, right? When yeah, I don't know. When it's like in you, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, in which case, that person would be deserving of empath- more empathy and pity, right. as opposed to Tamara. Yeah, that's true. I I suppose I do pity Richard a little more than I pity Tamara. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly also a victim, right? But Yes. I mean, she, she, they the Goths were conquered and mm-hmm. she was brought to be, you know, a Roman's bride. Like, yeah. that sucks. Yeah. They killed all her sons. That sucks. I mean, I get it. She's got cause for revenge. Yeah. Um. Did she have to do what she sent her sons to do to Lavinia? No. Nope. No, she didn't. All Lavinia right. Lavinia had nothing to do with it. So, okay. Well, anyway, uh, I was just trying to make your point that like, no, no, any I hit any whiff of rape. Uh, yeah, puts, yeah. Usually puts someone over the edge it's in our true. And that in our bracket is why Proteus beat out Portia. And I'm still angry about that. Yeah. 
Um, so, so that's the end of round one. So yeah. let's, let's review uh, the matchups, I guess, that we've got going forward yeah. in round two. So round Our two. sweet 16. Ah, okay. So in round two, Lear is going to go against Proteus. Uh-huh. And then we which, have... We'll see. Oh, I know, right? Uh, then we're going to have Claudius from Hamlet going up against the Duke from the Revengers tragedy. I feel like I know how that's going to pan out. Wait, no, it's Antiochus. Oh, shit. It is Antiochus. Yeah. Well, sorry. I still feel like I know how that's going <laughs> to pan out. Antiochus. My bad. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be Antiochus versus the Duke. Then we've got, we're going to have the the brothers Malfi versus Edmund the Bastard from King Lear. That's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. They're terrible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's going to be real fun. Yeah. Uh, Othello is going up against Angelo for Measure for Measure. Ooh. And I know how I feel about that one, but I don't oh, know man. how everybody else is going to feel about that one. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. No, it's good. Whew. Uh, then we're going to have Brachiano and Flaminio of the White Devil go against Alice of Faversham. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah, and that's going to be balanced out by Barabbas from the Jew of Malta going up against Livia from Women Will Wear Women, which... Oh, snap! I think that's so tight. I have no idea how that one's going to go. I don't even know how I feel about that one. Oh, man. I Okay, I just long for the days of MTV, the MTV show Celebrity Deathmatch. <laughs> like, I want to yeah. see this in full-on, like, violent claymation. For real. Okay. For real. I may have to make that happen. I think I have some clay in my art cabinet somewhere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, then we're also going to have D'Amville from The Atheist Tragedy versus The Cardinal. Mm-hmm. from the cardinal mm-hmm. and finally today's winner tamara up against the guy who started it all tamberlane oh dang uh Ooh. yeah i got I have, I have feelings about that i got chills just thinking about it yeah oh uh, my god i don't know how that's gonna go oh my god yep so this is gonna be one hell of a second round yeah. Uh, stay tuned. Feelings are going to get heated. Uh-huh. Buttons are going to be pushed. Yep. Oh, my God. I know. We'll kick it off next week. So yeah. be sure to tune in for that. Yes. Be sure to listen in for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Do we have a corrections noise? We don't, do we? We don't. Okay. Womp Great. Womp. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Let's stick with that. All right. Okay. Uh, we say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it seems only right to issue corrections as necessary. So some number of weeks ago, and I don't remember which episode this was in, but we were talking about... It was our King John episode. Okay. I was just reviewing it yesterday. Great. In the King yeah. John episode, uh, we were talking about the Latin word honorificapalitipatubatubatabatabatabas. Honorificabilitudinatatabas. Great. Aubrey did it. I did it. You did it. Uh, we were talking about that word uh, and how it anagrams theoretically into a Latin phrase that means I am Francis Bacon and I wrote these plays, essentially. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and again, 
uh, our our good friend Mia Gosling from Good Tickle Brain pointed out um, that I missed one very important anagram of that phrase, which is vitally important textual analysis for the play uh, Love Slavers Lost as a whole, and also mm-hmm. um, sort of Shakespeare studies in general. And I am horrified that I missed this. Uh, I can't believe I did. So anyway, corrections as necessary. So what what we missed was that that the Latin word can also be rearranged to spell bud, I fart, onion, biscuit, hail it. Yes. And it's it's really important that our listeners know that. It's um, very important. Because <laughs> farting onion biscuits are are just like a building block of Shakespeare's plays. Hail it. Hail, hail it. it. Hail That's it. A, it's a command. It's imperative. Yeah. Also, I like how Mia Gosling is our very good friend. She tweeted at us one time. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you met her. So I, I feel like yeah, she's our very good friend now. We are best friends now. So that's it. That's where we're at. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for Othello 201 with another super special guest. Y'all, we're excited about this one. I mean, really, really excited. We're not ever going to have a special guest that we're like, we are not excited because <laughs> we. That's true. That was dumb. Um, <laughs> and I know, like, we, every time we're like, we have a special guest and it's going to be so awesome, but like, they're all awesome. So, yeah, have I we ever let you down? Not yet. Not yet. And not ever. And not with this one. For so, sure. yeah, Othello 201, get on board, get excited. Also, can I just real quick, like, yeah. if you are out there, and you want to be a guest or you know someone who would make a good guest get in touch we're looking for them we need totally. guests we want them we love guests we want and we want folks from all corners of the shakes bubble right yeah. or even outside yeah. of the shakes bubble we don't just want scholars or just you know teachers we want actors we want directors you know whatever angle you're yeah. coming at this if you thing run from, a fan blog on tumblr we want to hear from you if you post dank shakespeare memes on instagram we want to hear from you if you are the voice behind the at shakespeare twitter account we want to hear from you and also i want to marry you you heard it here first folks (laughs) so tune in next week for another episode of jess hamlet uses hurley Bowie shakespeare show as her own personal dating website (laughs) yep um, Whamlet out. <laughs> Whamlet out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Next. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Alayo? Next! A 
put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber going 95, I don't get to where I'm going I think I might die, I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife Bud, I fart onion biscuit, hail it. Vitally important textual analysis. Yeah, Vitally. It is. Yeah. I'm glad we corrected that error. I know. It was really it was really grating on me. Egregious oversight. It was. How dare we? How very dare we?